0: All right. Um, I want to share with you some more out of Exodus. Uh, and let me just reiterate why we're doing this story of Exodus. Uh, a lot of times, well, when I grew up, <laughs> um, even on into seminary, to be quite honest, our focus was the New Testament. That's the words of Jesus. Let's focus on the letters in red, New Covenant. We can ignore the Old Covenant. And the Old Testament's very interesting when you need to pepper in a few different stories, but let's just focus on the New Testament. that's kind of how I grew up. Um, maybe that's how you grew up, and so we're going to be in exodus for a significant period of time and so why are we doing it? Let me just say that um I think that exodus the title is into the wilderness i i don't want to me I don't want to infer with that that we're headed into the wilderness as a church, but I do think that there are some parallels for the season of life we're in, seeking God and seeing where He's going to take us. And as I've, I've challenged us with over the last few months, not just thinking about 2023 or even 2019, a lot of people are still trying to get back to 2019, but, but instead 2030, 2040, 2050, where, where are we going? Where is the church universal going? Where are people Today, What does it look like to follow God when there's such rapid change in the world and, and expectations and how we spend our time and um, where we spend our time, where we work, how we work? I mean, There's just a lot of change happening in the world around us. And I found in following God, whether it, it's starting a church or starting a business or what do we do, how do we parent, you know, how do we... How do we deal with issues in our marriage? It, it really is. I, it would be nice to have a burning bush that just said, okay, here's the, here's the right choice. It's burning, and we can see it. But so much of life, you know as well as I do, is seeking what is the wise thing to do here and then taking a step and hoping you were right. And so we spend a lot of time praying about that, and we spend a lot of time seeking God and this group of people that we're entering into their story, like, this is their life. We have no idea where we're going. We know where we're supposed to go, but we're just, we're just trying to follow the one who's taking us somewhere. And so that is, in part, where we are. And whenever you are going to follow God for things other than stability, because a lot of people seek God simply to bring stability and certainty within their lives, Whenever you follow God and your primary concern is where is he leading rather than certainty and stability, there's going to be problems and there's going to be headaches and there are going to be times that we're going to make the wrong choice or we're going to make mistakes and then uh, my faith in God's goodness and graciousness is if we make a mistake, then God will then show us, well, then what's the next right thing to do? And this is just part of life, isn't it? this is how i follow jesus and uh i have had very few i I won't say i've never had any but i've had very very few moments in which very big decisions in my life or big problems that i've got to deal with were so absolutely clear that this is the only right choice and this is absolutely what god wants and so a part of <coughs> excuse me <coughs> a part of following God is being uncomfortable with some uncertainty. And it's seeking Him, trusting that He's going to do the thing He says He's going to do. And that He does care about you, does care about your family and your job and your future and your marriage. And He cares about those things. And He's not just going to leave you out in the middle of nowhere, but He's there with us. But part of coming to that reality and following God requires a broader understanding of Scripture than we will get simply reading the four Gospels. Absolutely, we trust in Jesus. And, but when we dive down into the words of Jesus, Jesus is regularly using the Old Testament to teach us what God's been doing this whole time and what God intends to continue doing. And if there is one story, there are lots of important stories in the Old Testament, but if there is one story that is really the foundation for everything else in Scripture, it is going to be the story of Exodus. So my desire is not just to come in and we have a really good, raw, raw sermon and, um, hey, go get them! Because that feels good from time to time. I mean, I hope you don't come in and go, wow, life is terrible when you leave. You know, I hope that's not what happens. But becoming truly biblically literate And understanding the totality of Scripture is the calling of all believers. And so when we dive into some of these places, we don't just dive in and go, well, that's interesting. I guess that's how that happened. But instead, as we did when we went through Genesis, we begin to see that God is actually teaching lessons that are not just relevant to us today. They are necessary for us today. But we will miss those lessons if we don't dive in to the other parts of Scripture that often get overlooked. So that's why we're in Exodus. And I hope that you will stay with us through this series. And along the way, if you have questions or you can stop me in the middle, uh, I had a great suggestion. If you are, are reading through during the week, because in order for us to be interactive in, a, in this time through Exodus, you're going to have to be aware of what we're talking about, which means you've got to be reading. If you read something, and you will in Exodus, and you're like, oh, I don't know about this. What is this all about? Send me an email. Send me a text. Call me. And I will try to include that in the following week of when we're talking about that topic. <coughs> Excuse me. But if there's something while I'm talking you just, you just want to interject, you are welcome to do that as well. All right? So... Be praying for our church. Be praying for where we head from here. Um, I don't say this often. In fact, in the 15 years that Journey has been a church, I I don't know that I've ever said this. Maybe I have. If I have, it's been once or twice. It does feel like there's a tremendous amount of of spiritual warfare going on that we feel in lots of different places. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we kind of get excited about that and we go, well, if there's spiritual warfare... And God must be doing something big. Well, I do believe God is doing something big. The Spiritual warfare sometimes is hard. And I do wish that you will pray for our leaders, pray for our church, pray for their church, um, and that we will seek to see what God wants us to do from here. Okay? All right. I'm going to do something really quick. Thank you, Jimmy. I'm going to do something. That's not going to be really quick. i got to quit get, talking about time when it comes to sermons because... No, you don't believe me. But I'm going to try to cover less each week over the next few weeks. Today, I really just want to share with, catch you up where we have been, and I want to share with you the five objections of Moses to leadership. Um, And then I want to wrap up with what is probably the most important thing that happens in that section, which is God revealing his name and why that's important to us today. All right? Um, So if you have your Bibles, you want to open to Exodus chapter 1. Um, We're going to go through Exodus chapter 4 today, um, although we're going to do a lot of skipping around. As I shared the first week, there are three movements through Exodus. There's a a movement of liberation that is through Exodus chapter 13, verse 16. There's another movement um, which is about covenant, um, which is roughly from the Passover to the Ten Commandments, which is Exodus 13, verse 17, through about chapter 24. And then there's a third movement in Exodus that is simply about the tabernacle, and it's really the giving of the Ten Commandments to the end of the book, chapters 25 through 40. The chapters and verses did not come with the scrolls of the original scriptures. We added those later, um, but when we go back and we look at the scrolls in their original languages, there are three collections of stories, and we're in the first one, which is the freedom or liberation uh, of this group of people that come from the line of Joseph who have been Um, enslaved and abused. Uh, But I think it's important for us to remember why this story is even here um, and also several things that point all the way back to Genesis already. We talked about the fact that there was a crafty and oppressive ruler um, in Egypt and um, that was a problem. A new king, the king That was Pharaoh when Joseph was in Egypt. He saw that when you bless God's people, God blesses you. And a period of time goes by and it says all of those generations passed away. And a new king came in. It says in Exodus 1.8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. That is the whole point of this story Pharaoh sees they are growing, and he is afraid they are going to overpower them as a nation. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, which, depending on your translation, is the word craftily. Same word that's used of the serpent. And so we, are, we have the introduction of another serpent figure right up front in the story, in the character of Pharaoh. And he is one who is not just doing the testing like the serpent did in genesis but he's also being tested himself he says come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land the very thing he's afraid of he's actually going to cause to come to pass and we're just going to see that over and over and over again in these first few chapters of exodus so he comes up with a plan and if you remember the plan plan number one was let's enslave them so they'll stop having kids, except they had more kids, and they kept growing, <clears throat> growing, growing, growing. Second plan was, listen, list two midwives, and whenever the boys are born, we'll have those midwives kill the babies and just say, you know, I don't know what's happening here, but somehow kill the babies. And the two midwives said no, and instead they delivered the babies, <clears throat> and when Pharaoh said, hey, why are all these little boy babies alive? They said, hey, we don't know, these these." These uh, slave women, I mean, they just, as soon as they go into labor, they have a baby. I mean, we can't even get there in time to fulfill your wishes. But in all honesty, they're just refusing to believe Pharaoh and they're choosing to believe God, which is a little bit of a, an Eve figure, except this time, rather than listening to the crafty snake, they listen to God. And if you remember one of the first questions that we discovered in the story of the fall, God is walking through and he asks two very important questions. That are important to us today one is do you remember where are you and what was the second one who have you been listening to which is such an important question in our lives and so they chose to listen to god rather listen to pharaoh um and then after that doesn't work they they continue to grow he says we're just we're just going to throw all the male children into the river which is going to set up the rest of the story, and when we come to the river of blood and we come to the destroyer that comes as the final plague, that is all pointing back to the moment in which Pharaoh said, I will stop this by killing all their children and throwing them in the river, all their male babies. So it backfired. It didn't work. We talked about last week the burning bush and this incredible reality that when Moses is born... He is put into, your translation probably says a basket of reeds, uh, but the word there is only used twice in all of the Bible. It's the word for the ark, and the only other place that that word is used is the ark of Noah. And so we have this kind of recreation story that's coming through. We talked about the burning bush last week, and the burning bush possibly representing Eden. Uh We have a flaming sword, we have a fire, we have a tree, all images of Eden after they left Eden. And then today we come to the place where God is going to call him. And here's what I'd like for you to listen to as we go through this. I would like for you to listen to the objections of Moses because I will tell you I believe God is still calling us to do great things. And I believe all of the objections that we have or that he had we still have. And some of you in this room may be objecting to something you feel God is saying to you right now, and you need to hear how God responds to Moses and his objections. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, God hears the cry of the oppressed. It says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. If you ever have a moment when you are just crying out, you question, does God hear my cry? Part of the point of this story is when we represent God around the world, we represent God with the people we work with, we talk about God in our children's ministry or youth ministry or small groups. Or When we sit down and read Scripture, we look at people that are different from us, we look at people that reject Christ altogether, we remember that at its very core in the beginning of this this story, There is a cry, and God hears it. God hears the cry of the hurting and the oppressed. Now Jesus is later going to say this very specifically. It's very easy to say, well, yeah, because that's the Exodus story. And yet we'll read in Luke 4 that Jesus is going to say, I have come to free the captives. I have come for the oppressed. I have come for the sick. I have come for the blind. I have come to declare this is the year of the Lord's favor. Because this is all a story about liberating the oppressed. We'll talk about that. I want to wrap up with just that thought in a few minutes. But I want us to know right up front that when you are crying out, no matter what it's about, God does hear that cry. And it may take some time. At this point, uh, Moses is 40 years old when he flees Egypt. And what we see is him struggling with, how do I free my people? Do I, when I see them being abused, do I step in and step between their abusers? And we see that there's a slave being abused, and he steps in, and he strikes the guard that's abusing him and kills him, and says, Pharaoh wants to now kill Moses. And so Moses flees. He's 40 years old at this point. He then goes and he, he travels, he leaves Egypt, and he meets who's going to become his wife and his, his in-laws. And 40 years passes. He's now 80 years old when we come to this call of Moses. And at this point in his life, um, he's married and he has kids and he has a good job and he has no stress. I mean, he's just living life. And God is knocking on His door, and there has to be a part for Moses to say, you may hear their cry, but I'm 80 years old, and I'm pretty comfortable where I am. I'm not sure I want to go. But yet, one of the whole purposes of Exodus is to demonstrate how a group of people, the Scripture says, for 400 years are enslaved and oppressed I want you just to imagine how does a group that's been enslaved and oppressed for 400 years how do they govern themselves how do you feed a group like that because what you've done is simply do whatever your taskmaster told you to do and you did it until they told you to stop and go home and then you came back to work when they told you to come do that you never had to make those decisions for yourself They made all the decisions about how do we take care of this group? How is this group fed? How do we make sure they have all the things they need to do to do their job for the day? Someone else made those decisions. They did not make those decisions for themselves, though the Scriptures do say they did have elders among them. So much of this is how does this group of people leave Egypt and even survive? Because they have no idea how to govern themselves. If it becomes every man for himself, they're just going to fall apart and and they're going to kill each other at the end of the day. But there is one person among them who is from their lineage who has been trained in how to lead. He's been trained in how to organize. He's been trained in how do we do logistics and how do we make sure that everybody has what they need. And then when there are problems that come up, somebody has to arbitrate those problems. Who's going to do that? And we find in this story, there's really only one person that can do that, and it's Moses. As we look back through all of the miraculous things that even allowed him to be alive at this point, God has been planning this in advance. Imagine God started the rescue 80 years ago when Moses is born. And it's taken 80 years before it even starts getting any kind of legs to it. If you are crying out, wondering when God's going to show up and do something, the fact that He hasn't done what you want Him to do yet doesn't mean He's not doing something. But I imagine for them, they were giving up that God was hearing their cry. But yet this is one of the most fundamental things we see about God's character in this whole story, is God hears the cry of the oppressed and He is there. So God calls a gifted but flawed leader. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring My people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in this moment, He's out tending sheep at Mount Sinai where He'll eventually come back and receive the Ten Commandments. And then this burning bush appears and it captures His attention. And he just sits and he just takes it in. What is this thing? Which is exactly the way God desires for us to approach him. Just to sit and soak in, to absorb and to just say, I just want to be here. I just want to be in this moment with you. Until the bush begins to speak to him or the angel begins to speak to him. He comes up with five objections. The first one is this. And some of you probably have had this objection in your own life. Exodus 3, chapter 11, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Objection number one is this, I'm not good enough. It says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, which is exactly what ends up happening. But in the beginning, his response is, I'm not good enough. Reality is, the greatest leaders are the ones that feel they're not good enough. The leaders that feel they're good enough, uh, generally something else begins to happen in their leadership. It becomes more about the leader than it becomes about the people that they're leading. Really great leaders often do not feel they're good enough. So if you feel that you are not good enough, count yourself among the ranks of some of the greatest leaders of all time. I think it's that humility that helps someone lead well. So he has another objection. He says, This, well, they won't believe me. Who do you say that sent me? And probably what he's thinking about is there are actually two interactions with Moses and the slaves. One was where he killed the guard. The second one was where he began to step in at another time, and they said, What are you gonna do? You're gonna kill us too? Are you gonna be our king? They mocked him, and that's when he fled. He's probably he's, he's remembered that moment for the last 40 years. He says, they won't believe me. Who do I say you are? And Exodus 3, verse 13 says, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I want to come back to that in just a minute. After he gives a second objection, God issues his second call to Moses in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. They will listen to you. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Which is interesting. This is actually what God first says and what Moses is going to say to Pharaoh the first time. Not, we want you to let them go. Let them go for three days to worship and to sacrifice. That's the initial ask. Just three days. Just let us go for three days. The Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that he may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and Any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the second call. And so Moses' response to the second call is a third objection. You know, at some point you begin asking the question, when is God going to give up on Moses? And maybe you've not come to that point where you've asked that question yet. Instead, you've asked the question like this, Three times now I've messed up. God's going to abandon me forever now, probably. Even though Moses kept giving objections, God kept calling him. Even though we keep making mistakes, God doesn't give up on us. There is not a place in which God says, I'm done with you. There's a place we say that. There's not a place that God says that. So objection three... They still won't believe me. He says in chapter 4, Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. We're not going to talk about this today, but he then gives him basically three signs in which he's going to prove that God is with him. And the first one is, he's holding a staff, he says, throw your staff down. And when he throws it down, it becomes a snake. Then he says, reach down, grab it by the tail, and it becomes a staff again. Uh, you know, if you know the story, that's going to become important later. Then the second time, he he says, now take your hand and stick it in your cloak. And when you pull it back out, it's as white as snow. It's leprous, as white as snow. It's terrible skin disease. He says, put it back in your cloak. He puts it back in his cloak, and he pulls it out again, and it's whole again. He says, you will do these things In front of them, they will believe you. Sometimes this is my biggest problem. The times in which God has done something over and over and over and over again, and I still say, But God, are you sure? Does anybody else have that problem? Like I see it. It happens. Something will happen I'll be like, God, Mark, you need to remember this and you need to stop asking God if he's going to do something because he, it's so clear he's doing something and yet when the next thing comes, I'm like, God, are you going to? I'm not sure I can trust. I just say if we didn't have a merciful, gracious God, he would not give any of us another chance. Not Moses, not me, not anyone. He is a merciful and gracious God. The third thing, if that doesn't work, he says, if the your hand out of your cloak doesn't work, the staff turned into a serpent doesn't work, then take some water from the Nile, just pour it on the ground, it's going to become blood. All of these things pointing to some of the plagues that are coming later. It's going to turn to blood if they don't believe you at that point. And after that happens, they will absolutely believe you. So there are three things that I'm going to give you. And he sees them. It happens right in front of him. And how does he respond? Objection number four. I can't lead anyone. I'm not a convincing speaker. Sometimes I like to say I don't talk good. (laughs) Verse 10, it says, Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I find this over and over and over something we see in the church. There's a need for someone to invest in others. Whether it's in leadership or service or being a teacher or a helper. But I'm not good at it. I don't know enough Bible. I don't talk good enough. I I, I just think I would fail, and I just don't want to do it. You're not alone if you feel that way. And yet what God is saying to him is, who do you think fashioned your mouth in the first place? If I want you to speak, you will speak, and you will do a great job at it. Who are you that if your hands don't work right, I'll make them work right, because I craft those things. There is nothing that you're going to come up against me with that I cannot overcome because I am the Lord your God. And yet so many times we miss out on being a part of the thing God wants to do in our lives because we stop believing somewhere along the way we just weren't good enough. We couldn't do it. Or we look at some superstar out there. And this is what preachers do. You look at some superstar out there and you're like, well, I'll never be that. God will never use me. God would respond to us in the same way He responded to Moses. Who do you think I am? If I can fashion you, I can accomplish my purposes through you. One of the reasons I think that God uses people that don't think they're good enough is because it when it happens, when a student's life has changed, when a child's life is changed, when a marriage is changed, when a group within the church is changed, the glory does not go to the leader. The glory goes to the one who made the change. Because that is God. And if we're up here saying, look how good a job I did, I mean, I'm pretty awesome. And we completely bypass the fact that God is the one doing this. And, I mean, there's some really capable people out there, but none of them are as capable as God is. He can do these things. There's, there's actually a, a Midrash. If you were with us through Genesis, you know a Midrash or some oral traditions passed down from rabbis were not Scripture, but they were interpretations of Scripture, stories, legends that went along that they knew, that the pop, the community or population knew about, but it's, it's really interesting, there, there's a, a legend, I'll call it a legend, um, it is in the Midrash, but it's a legend, that Moses messed up when he was 10 years old, and he went into the throne room, and he picked up Pharaoh's headdress and put it on his head, and Pharaoh walked in and was incensed, and he was just livid with Moses. And so he calls for Moses to be killed. And there was a priest (laughs) that was in the room, which, again, some legends say was Jethro, who would eventually go on to be Moses' father-in-law, who says, wait a minute, wait a minute, he's just a child. Let's test him instead. And we'll put a bowl of fine jewels in, in, in one bowl, and we'll have a bowl of hot coals next to it and let's see which bowl he chooses. And if he chooses the jewels, then do what you will with him. But if he chooses the hot coals, let him go free. And in the Midrash, the legend goes that he immediately, instinctively reached for the coals. And he burned his hand. And he put his hand in his mouth, which burned his mouth. And that uh, somehow he disfigured his mouth as a result of this test. Did that happen? I do not know. We also don't know exactly what he's talking about. He was trained to speak. He knew how to give a speech. He grew up with all of the same education that uh, everyone else in Pharaoh's household would have had. And so we don't really know, but I thought that was just an interesting legend behind that. But he says, I'm not a convincing speaker. And then finally... His fifth objection and his final objection, he just pleads with God, please send someone else. Anybody but me. Just anybody. Verse 13, it says, he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? And know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You will speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. In other words, you will tell him what to do, and he will do just like... You're going to do what I'm telling you to do. I am God to you. You will be God to Him. So that He only does what you tell Him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The reality is, is that God is still calling people to important things that they do not feel qualified for. God is calling you to do things that you do not feel qualified for. God's goal today is the same goal when this story began. We can back up to the story of the Tower of Babel. We can back up to any of the stories in Genesis. And it is the same. I intend to redeem the world through a people. He first made that promise to Abram. He reiterated, reiterates that promise to Moses. Jesus will again reiterate that promise to us. I am redeeming the world and I am demonstrating I am the God of gods. I am the king of kings. I am the one who will give you life and give it to you abundantly. Everyone else wants to take from you. I want to give to you. And a lot of us still object to being used by God. We were at Jake's graduation yesterday. He graduated college. We're super proud of him. And yeah, we've got uh, at least one other grad. I'm not sure how many graduates. How many other graduates do we have in here? Ben's graduating. Not over, not yet. I think it's just Ben. Will graduate from high school. And the. The president of the UT system said, uh, he gave a speech, and it was, I told Jake after, it was really hard to listen to a speech, but he had some really great points. Um, but he said, never stop dreaming. And he said, that a person is not old until they have more accomplishments in their past than they have dreams in their future. And I think that is so true of us as followers of Jesus that we dream about God fulfilling His purpose in this world until we draw our last breath. And that we should have great dreams ahead of us. And so as we come to this place of whether it be change for our church or change in your life or change of a job or or, or, or plugging in in a ministry that you never thought you could do before or or I'm going to read the Bible all the way through, I've never done it, I never thought I could do it, but I think I can do it, start believing for bigger things. Like, you'll never get to the life that you yearn for by not believing in bigger things. And sometimes those bigger things are, 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 are you know, getting a raise or getting a, a new job, but But for us, all of those things have to do with God wants us to be His people in this world to demonstrate He is real. You can do great things if you believe. And it has not come down to the the lack of God willingness to call or to empower. It often comes down to our unwillingness to believe and to follow. And if we are people of faith, We are not afraid of big things. And if we are people of faith, we don't look around at all the problems and go, there's just too many of them. Instead, we say, God, if You are drawing us, we will come with You. I do know that at least as it relates to our current place as a church, we still are determining what that is. But once we have determined, then we go, we follow. And if that's to stay here, or if that's to go there, or if that's to go somewhere else, go where He calls us because God still does big things. Not so we can go, look at us. So the world will go, look at God. Look at Him. I want more of that. I see that happen in my own life. This is what I want to leave you with. We jump back to Exodus three verse thirteen. Who is this God that does these things? It says And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to him, The God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, which is really a kind of crazy thing. If I walk up to you and say, Hi, I am, what are you gonna say? You are what? right I am you are what I mean I don't get it this Hebrew word is the word that means to be depending on the parsing of the word based on it's you know what person is it's in and, and whether it's present or imperfect or past it can mean different things but at its core it means to be and what he's saying is tell them Tell them I am. I am being. In this particular form, in the use of this Hebrew word, it's talking about a future participle, which means I am and I will be and I always will be. What he's trying to say is I am being. And my being is not dependent on anything or anyone else. I just am. While you and I, we, we can find our being out of someone like in our parents, or we can say, my I am because of my upbringing or my career or my training or my education. God is not saying, I am because of something else. I just am. And so we, do we approach Him as if He is? We begin to ask the question, well, He is what Exactly. If you'll spend your entire life following Jesus, asking the question, He is what? I am what? Like it draws you in. Scripture draws you in to say, you cannot just stay here at this means I am. Oh, I am. Okay, interesting. No, you are what? That's the question He's wanting us to ask. And we begin to ask that question. We begin to ask about some of the secrets of the universe. Not simply, how is this word conjugated? Yes. Up until this point, the word God, everywhere you've seen it, has been the word Elohim. And if you remember from our study in Genesis, Elohim is a title. It is not a name. It is not God's name. But most places that you see the word God written out, capital G, it is a title, Elohim. Uh, And so he is just saying, I am a God. They would have said Elohim about any of the other gods. I am a God. But then he moves on to say, now I am going to distinguish myself from all of those other gods with the name that is above all other names. And you'll find that in your text whenever you read the word Lord and it's an uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D. That, that's, the, that's the word Adonai. And we can use it about anything. We can, we can use that about... We, we refer to Him as Lord and God, but we can use that just as Lord. But if you ever see it written in all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, and that is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. Somewhere around 400, 500 B.C., uh, the Jews stopped saying it for two reasons. They said, for one, it's the name above all names. It is so sacred, it should not be spoken. And so they stopped speaking it. And instead, they began referring almost exclusively to him as Elohim, or simply writing out the the consonants of Yahweh. Or sometimes you'll find it big G dash D. They take the O out because they, for them, it doesn't matter. We can call him Elohim, but he is the God, the only one that matters. They had such a high regard for his name that to this day, observant Jews won't speak it. What we find in his deliverance of his name, he says, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. He says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It is the name Yahweh. One of the things that we see in this story, the character of God, is that Jehovah, Yahweh, is the God of liberation. The God who saves. This is who He is. He is the God who saves. He is the God who liberates. The story of the Exodus is the story of humanity starting over with a new chance to be the remnant that sets the whole world free. We saw it in the flood story. We saw it in Abraham's story, we saw it in Joseph's story, we see it in the Exodus story, we will then see it later in the story of Jesus. I'm going to use a remnant to set the world free. In the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, says this about rescue. This is Paul referencing Jesus. He says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's most likely referencing Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. and You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He is a God of liberation. If you are here today in a, in a moment of bondage, he is the God of liberation. He is the one who wants to set us free. But not just us in this room desire for the whole world to be set free, to use us in part of doing that. I want to pray with you, and then Scott and Ken are going to come up, and they're going to serve communion if you would like to take communion together. Um, we'll do our offering song at the end, and then we'll be dismissed. Um, I hope you'll join us next week, and I hope that you're on this journey with us Not just where we hold services, but our desire to see the world around us change.